It's magic. I don't know how else to describe it. We are at a threshold. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, a French sociologist named Emile Durkheim proposed a concept known as the sacred-profane dichotomy, a theory which perceives the universe as being divided into two types of spaces, the sacred and the profane. The connotations of these labels are a little misleading. This is not a good versus evil binary. Sacred space is not divine or blessed, but structured, given meaning, purpose, and protection by human action. Profane space, meanwhile, is not obscene, but unstructured, unknown, unmastered. Think of the landscape from an old western movie. Picture the vast, unchanging, dusty plains of the desert the homogenous terrain blending into the unforgiving sky. It's a place that relishes in its own mystery, threatening to obliterate any traveler that seeks to tame it. It is profane. Now imagine a lone cabin nestled in the desert, a pioneer's lodging, defiantly assembled from stubborn timber a mud chimney puffing white smoke into the sweltering air. The cabin orients viewers in the landscape, establishing structure among the chaos of the desert. The cabin is a sacred space. So, there is sacred space, and there is profane space, and between them lies a threshold, a liminal point. A space between spaces, straddling the past and the future, where two moments meet, a point outside of time. Think of a shoreline where the land, organized and understood by humans, meets the amorphous sea. Think of the earth and space, where the curving outline of our familiar planet, our sacred space, meets the astounding formlessness the profanity of space. And at each threshold, where disorder meets structure, where obscurity meets clarity, there is what is known as an axis mundi, a cosmic axis constructed by humans, which points from earth to the heavens. Examples of such structures are scattered throughout history. The Egyptians assembled the pyramids, the Babylonians constructed the Tower of Babel, And Americans, we built the rocket. I'm Nate Ray, writer for The Donut, and this is the Rocket Launch Pod. OTC is go. Packet is go. OTC is go. Copy us is go. Houston flight is go. Pilot go. FTM is go. Safety comms is go. FTU is go. LRD is go. SRO is go. CDI is go. Launch director NTD, our launch team is ready to proceed at this time. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one, liftoff, liftoff on Apollo 11. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. 
That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them. Lift off. Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. It's gone, the shuttle, and that those aboard it could not have and did not survive. Booster ignition and liftoff of Endeavor, completing Kibo and fulfilling Japan's hope for an out-of-this-world space laboratory. Ignition. The story of the space race is familiar, tidy, structured. It has been mastered, understood, and infused with myth by the collective American memory. It has become a classic story of good versus evil, the underdog overcoming the powerful adversary. To most, the story begins on October 4th, 1957, with a taunt from the Soviet Union as they launch Sputnik, humanity's first artificial satellite, into orbit. Then the escalation. On May 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy announces to Congress his goal of landing Americans on the moon by the end of the decade. The fight rages throughout the 1960s as the opposing powers volley for control of space in a horse race that captivates the globe. It all culminates on July 20th, 1969, when the Apollo 11 mission successfully lands on the moon and Neil Armstrong takes humanity's first steps onto the lunar surface. Scientists and science fiction writers alike hail the moment as a milestone in the evolution of the human race. Americans, it seemed, had won. But after that, it all gets a little fuzzy. The country stops paying attention, stops trying to understand. We had landed on the moon, had mastered it. It no longer impressed us with its mystery. In 1972, just three years after the first moon landing, Americans visited the moon for the last time as the Apollo program came to an end. It had taken just eight years for the country's space program to reach the moon after Kennedy's announcement of the moonshot. But it would now take another nine years for the space program to recapture the nation's attention. What was it that would reignite Americans' passion for space? That would convince voters and lawmakers to spend billions of dollars on a new generation of cosmic ambition? Let's talk about the space shuttle. Discovery Houston. 20 seconds to LOS Tedris. Nice to be in orbit. NASA's space shuttle program is the darling of American space travel, the poster child of what we think progress should look like. As Americans, we're very proud of our beloved space shuttle and are quick to defend it. And for good reason. The shuttle itself is a marvel of human engineering and craftsmanship. It's a beautiful machine, made up of 200,000 separate components. It looks and functions like a souped-up jet engine, performing the remarkable feat of flying astronauts up to Earth orbit and then returning them to Earth for a rolling touchdown on the tarmac. The space shuttle program ran for 30 years, from 1981 to 2011, and flew 135 missions. It transported a staggering 500 people past the boundary of space. 
delivered satellites and telescopes to Earth orbit, allowed scientists to conduct experiments in microgravity, and facilitated the construction and supply of the International Space Station. If the Apollo program meant that Americans beat the Soviets in a winner-take-all race to the moon, then the shuttle program was a three-decade-long victory lap, flexing a sustained American presence in space. So, why did it end? The space shuttle program was indisputably a monumental achievement for American space exploration. It reimagined the way that humans enter and return from spaceflight, allowed for groundbreaking biological studies in Earth orbit, and established the International Space Station, which set the record for the longest continuous human presence in Earth orbit, now approaching 20 years of continuous occupancy. However, from a mission standpoint, the space shuttle program was intended to meet two specific goals to establish a reliable system of human space travel, and to reduce the cost of launches through reusable vehicles. From a strategic standpoint, it did not achieve either objective. Let's break down the first goal, reliability. In 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds into launch, killing all seven crew members aboard. 17 years later, in 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon entering Earth's atmosphere, also causing the deaths of its seven astronauts. This means that a total of 14 astronauts were lost throughout the program. Space historian Roger Lanius writes that a NASA risk analysis put the odds of a launch catastrophe involving the Space Shuttle at 1 in 450. Those actually don't sound like terrible odds, but in contrast, commercial airline passengers take a risk of 1 in 10 million. This means that by technical standards, the space shuttle could not be considered a reliably safe system. Now let's talk cost. Going to space requires a lot of money, which is why nations have traditionally been the only entities that can send people into space. How much money are we talking? The standard estimate for launching a rocket places the price tag at $10,000 per pound each launch. This means that each space shuttle launch cost NASA about $450 million. Okay, those are a lot of incomprehensibly big numbers. Let's do some quick math to put that in perspective. A standard bag of flour that you could find in your pantry weighs 5 pounds. Multiply that by 10,000 and you get $50,000 to launch that flower into space. Now take a grocery cart full of food. Stacked to the brim, it can weigh about 350 pounds. Launching that into space will cost you $3.5 million. It adds up. By the time the program ended in 2011, NASA had spent $209 billion on the space shuttles. President Barack Obama is often mistakenly associated with the termination of the space shuttle program due to the fact the last shuttle mission flew in 2011, two years into the Obama administration. Although President Obama did play a significant role in shaping the American space program, the termination of the space shuttle program actually came from President George W. Bush. In January of 2004, less than a year after the space shuttle Columbia disaster, President Bush announced his new Vision for Space Exploration which introduced the Constellation Program, a decades-long initiative to spread human presence throughout the solar system, beginning with America's return to the moon by 2020. It also called for the termination of the Space Shuttle Program by 2010. Discovery's four computers now have primary control of critical vehicle functions. So, 
Now it's 2020, and the country's space program is still years away from another moon landing. What happened? By the time the Obama administration took office, NASA was in turmoil. The space shuttle program had been hobbled by the Columbia disaster, and the agency was now consistently over budget and behind schedule on many of its major projects. In fact, the space agency could not even meet President Bush's deadline for the end of the space shuttle program, launching the final mission in 2011, a year behind schedule. President Bush's proposed Constellation program was no different. By 2009, the initiative was already two years behind schedule and it was estimated to cost $15 billion over the next five years. President Obama decided to pull the plug on the program, putting his faith in private partnership launches as the future of American space exploration. Which leads to the question, if NASA stopped flying astronauts on missions, who can go to space? Who, aside from a nation, can afford the staggering expenditures of spaceflight? It was around $20 million. That's Gregory Olson. In 2005, he self-funded a trip to the International Space Station, becoming only the third private citizen on Earth to ever do so. I was told that that price was uh, arrived at by the cost of the Soyuz vehicle, that they estimate at that time it cost around about $60 million to build, launch, and land the Soyuz vehicle. And since it carried three people, you know, you divide 60 by three and there's your $20 million price. He's an American entrepreneur and a successful one. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Olson was the son of an electrician and a school teacher. Although he was encouraged to become an electrician, Olson pursued higher education, ultimately earning his PhD in material sciences from the University of Virginia. A skilled engineer and scientist, Olson went on to co-found Sensors Unlimited, a company which produces infrared cameras. It made him a multimillionaire. I read a, an article in a newspaper in June of 2003, which was right after I sold my company, Sensors Unlimited. And it described how civilians could now go into space. And it was just one of these wow moments for me. Uh, you know, they mentioned the company Space Adventures, uh, which was founded by a UVA grad, Eric Anderson from uh, mechanical engineering and aerospace. So I contacted Eric and next thing I know, I find myself in training. Now, Eric wisely hooked up with some Russian people. Um, so they had connections into Roscosmos. That's the equivalent of NASA in Russia. And, uh, you know, this right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, they were looking to generate some money so they figured this was a good way to sell seats to civilians. So Eric was kind of the broker, you know, who arranged the trips. They were mostly Americans. Um, ironically, no Russian has gone this way to the best of my knowledge. But anyway, Eric would find the customers and the uh, uh, Space Adventures Russia would make all the arrangements for training and getting on the rocket and so forth. The Russians would reserve a seat for Olsen on a Soyuz spacecraft, a vehicle that they launched from Kazakhstan. But paying for a ticket on the rocket wasn't enough. Olsen still had to undergo a rigorous training process to go to space. I was in training in uh, 2004 for about two and a half months. And during a uh, medical exam, they found a small uh, a black spot on my lung. And since I had had a collapsed lung previously, they you know immediately 
uh, disqualified me. And it took a year to get back into the program, but uh, it was another lesson I learned about don't give up. They kept rejecting me and rejecting me, but I, I kept pounding away. And finally, they let me back into the program, and I did my last five months of training in 2005. He makes space travel sound pretty enticing. Once the rocket started vibrating, I was totally elated because I knew the next 10 days belonged to me. I, mean, I, I wasn't even thinking about the rocket blowing up or anything. It's just, yes, there's no way, you know, they could stop me from going. Because, you know, when we walk out to the launch pad, we're wearing all kinds of medical devices that monitor your heart rate and other stuff. And I'm just thinking, suppose I get in there and I feel a tap on the shoulder and said, oh, you know, some reading is wrong and you can't go. So that's what I was worried about, not you know, will a rocket blow up or will a mission fail? So once I felt that rocket going, I was like, yes, total elation. And, uh, you know, we had high G forces. We had about three and a half Gs going up and it really pushes you back in the seat. But that only, it lasts less than 10 minutes and all of a sudden your hand, which felt about 20 pounds, now just floats in the air and you realize, hey, we must be in orbit because we're weightless. It's magic. I don't know how else to describe it. Gregory Olson was a pioneer in what is known as space tourism, human space travel for recreational purposes. It's an industry that dates as far back as the 1960s. Before NASA was even sure that an Apollo mission could even reach the moon, Pan American Airlines created a waiting list for passengers who wanted to visit the lunar surface. Although the company obviously did not have the technology to perform such a service, it promised that it would one day turn that dream into a reality. By early 1969, 200 people had signed up for the waiting list. By July 20th, the day of the moon landing, the list had grown to 25,000 people. In 1971, when Pan American stopped taking reservations, the list included 90,000 names, including Ronald Reagan and Walter Cronkite. Pan American eventually went bankrupt and ceased operations in 1991, never fulfilling its promise to fly passengers to the moon. But it had planted a seed. In 2004, the company Virgin Galactic, founded by billionaire Richard Branson, announced plans to launch commercial flights to space, taking passengers to an altitude of 68.4 miles above the surface of the Earth, just past the Karman Line, the official boundary of space, at 62 miles above the surface. According to Virgin Galactic, the flights will last about two and a half hours and will linger in suborbital space for just four to five minutes. The cost for a seat? $200,000. Sounds like a lot, but it's also just 1% of what Greg Olson paid for a seat on the Russian rocket. Like Pan American, Virgin Galactic created a waiting list for passengers interested in reserving a seat on one of its revolutionary space flights. Although it is still in the process of developing the vehicles that will actually make the flights happen. The company claims that 80,000 people have signed up for a seat to date. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. While Virgin Galactic is committed to offering brief, suborbital joy rides to paying customers, another private company has been taking the space industry by storm, promising to fulfill the dream that rose and fell with the American Space Shuttle program, an enduring human presence in space. Tune in next episode as we delve into the significance of SpaceX and what its founder, Elon Musk, 
has in mind for the future of human space exploration. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the Rocket Launch Pod, a podcast from the Donut. A special thank you to Gregory Olson for appearing on the program, as well as to Peter Nowak, my producer, for his unwavering support for the project. I'd also like to thank the design team at the Donut for the amazing cover art they've created for the program. Audio for this episode came from the NASA Audio Archives, the Ronald Reagan Foundation, the CBS News Archives, and SpaceX. Additional information for this podcast came from the book The Space Barons by Christian Davenport and from The Smithsonian History of Space Exploration by Roger Lanius. If you're interested in learning more about the history of the space race and the Apollo missions, check out the Moonrise podcast from the Washington Post. I'm Nate Ray, and I'll see you next time. Because you you tell yourself, relax, you know you're going to be in there for two or three hours. So, um, you know, getting nervous and upset is just all counterproductive. But uh, you're obviously eager to get going. Um, And the other issue, you know, we, I had two cups of tea before uh, getting into the uh, Soyuz vehicle. So after about an hour, hour and a half, I had to pee. (laughs) But we all wear huggy diapers, so that took care of that.